Father, thank you. We come before you, and we thank you for the forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ. And we thank you that when we confess our sins, that you are faithful and just and righteous to forgive us of all of our sins. And so, Lord, we lay hold of that promise for our lives and for our relationships with one another. Lord, I pray for our church and praise you for uh, our financial direction and how it's uh, turning upward and that we have a relief in regard to our, our mortgage for several months that will give us a little bit more breathing room in regard to our finances. Lord, we lift, uh, lift that up to you because it's an answer to direct prayer to you and we give you the glory for that. And we thank you for how you're providing for us, uh, this church, every day, every week, every month. We ask that um, we would be responsible, we would be accountable to you and to you and to others around us as we seek to, uh, to minister, to be a steward of what you've given to us as we move forward as a church and as a body of believers. Lord, we ask that um, you would bring healing to hearts this morning. Uh, many come with with uh, broken hearts, with broken lives, and we ask that your your healing presence would would really be a reality to them. Um, we, we know that your presence is with us, and that um, we sometimes, unfortunately, forget. <laughs> yeah, but Lord, we, we acknowledge it to you this morning that your presence is with us, and you're seeing us through every trial, every difficulty every physical ailment that we're going through. And we reach out to you for your, your healing for our lives. And we thank you for all that you're doing in our lives, the things that we do every day, the things that, that enable us to, to, uh, to walk with you, your word, um, your, your people around us, your direct encouragement to us, uh, and how every day is a new day in light of who you are and what you've done for us. So we lift all of these things up to you and for you. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning. How are you doing today? Good? Good? All right, we're moving on to a new series this morning, and let me explain something to you. The title, Heartwood, comes from this little play on words, but obviously we're looking at the the deeper uh, connection of the cross, its formation in our lives. And so the idea of Hartwood is that we're going to the center of, uh, of it. Of course, Hartwood is the center, John would know this, uh, the center of, uh, of the, uh, the, uh, the wood of a tree, and it, um, and it grows from, from there on, on, on out. And so we're looking at, um, we're going to look in this series, uh, as we move towards uh, the Resurrection Sunday, we're going to be looking at this amazing uh, accomplishment by God in our lives from different angles. Today we're going to be looking at it from the Father's perspective, what the cross means to the Father. And then next week we're going to look at what the cross means to the Son. And then what the cross means to Satan, actually. And we're going to look at, finally, what the cross means to our own formation, especially in light of the resurrection. 
So this morning we're going to get a little theological on you here, uh, and um, I know you can follow with, with, with us on this, but the things that I'm going to talk about are really foundational to all that, um, all that we believe and how we walk with God. Um, if these things are confusing or cloudy to you, it'll be difficult to understand how God is actually shaping you and forming you and how he looks upon you. But what's, what's beautiful about this is that we're going to see what the cross means to the Father this morning. So let's start with a, with a word of prayer, and uh, then we'll move into the passage. Father, I ask that as we look at this very, very important passage of Scripture, that you would um, open our eyes, illuminate our minds, and really um, help us to, to bring it into our hearts that we might live that out. These important truths, these important aspects of what the cross means to you. For we ask it in your son's name. Amen. One of the most important things that anyone can ask in their life is how a person can live in a right way with God. If you believe in God um, and you're not sure of how to develop that relationship with him, that's incredibly important. And even if you do believe in God and you are related to him, sometimes we can lose, <laughs> lose grip on what is foundational in that relationship. How does a man or a woman live in rightness with God? Actually, this question is posed in Job 9.2, where he says, how can a man be righteous before God? And of course, it's an age-old problem, isn't it? We're constantly asking that question. And in some ways, religion are, is a way in which uh, it tries to answer that question. But Christianity has an entirely different view of how a person relates to a righteous God than all of the other religions of the world. Fortunately, this issue is being dealt, is being, has been dealt with in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. Here we're going to see how the righteousness of God is powerfully revealed to us. Someone said that it's the most critical section in the entire book of Romans. Now, one day I hope to go through the book of Romans with you. But this passage, as well as chapter 8, actually 6 through 8, but this passage, someone once said, is the greatest paragraph in the entire Bible. In this passage, we're going to find not only great meaning in regard to our how a man can stand righteous with God, but we're going to discover what the cross means to the Father. So, turn there. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. 
For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because of his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Um, up to this point in the book of Romans, um, it's been showing us that we all need the righteousness of God. He starts in chapter 1, verse 18, and he, he says, says to us that, that even those who do not believe in God and those who worship uh, nature and so on, they, they fall short of attaining that righteousness. The Gentile world falls short of attaining that righteousness. And the Jewish people, even though they look down upon those who were without God and those of, of the Gentile world, guess what, Jewish people, the nation of Israel? You have fallen short of the righteousness of God. And so now we come to this hinge verse. But now. But now signals a change in the passage. Look at the, 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 the slide above. Up until now, we've looked at the fact that there have been those who have been struggling and trying to find the righteousness of God, of living a just and righteous life before God, but yet they all have failed. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. In chapter 1, it was the wrath of God has been manifested, has been revealed. But now the righteousness of God has been revealed. The source of all of this righteousness, of course, is God himself. So in the context this, this morning, though, we're only going to focus upon um, verse 24 through 26. Uh, we're gonna try, I'm trying to give you a larger context of this, but for this morning, we're going to focus just on verse 24 and 26. So skip down with me there to 24. It kind of starts the verse number, which is not inspired, by the way. Somebody put these numbers in there. Um, starts in the middle of the, of the phrase, and, the, and are justified. What is he referring to, and are justified? Well, he refers back to those who have sinned, but if you go back further, it's all who believe. So all who believe and all who have fallen short are justified by his grace. Now, what in the world does justified mean? Um, it's actually a legal term. Um, it's a term that declares a person righteous before God. Now, I'm careful with my words there. It's a declaration of a legal standing before God. It doesn't make a person righteous. Making a person righteous is what the Christian life and the spiritual life is all about. 
our day-by-day walk and dependence upon him, we are being conformed to the image of his son from the inside out. It's not what we do outwardly, but it's what he transforms us in our, in our, in our lives around our emotions and our wills and our actions to, to change us from the inside out. That's being made righteous. What we're talking about here is being justified, being declared righteous as we stand before God. Now, when it's used in a non-spiritual sense, uh, justification, it has the idea of being vindicated. It's being right. So justification refers to being vindicated before God such that we have a new standing before him because he declares that we are no longer guilty sinners. Not only is the guilt and the condemnation removed from our lives, but God's righteousness is imputed. That's a fancy word of saying it's it's credited to. It's assigned to our lives. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he, God, made him, Christ, who knew no sin to be sin for us or on behalf of us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's an amazing, amazing verse. I'll read it again. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So in justification, we don't become internally righteous at that point, but Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. It is put in our account. It is assigned assigned to us before God. So to define justification, you could say it this way, that justification is God's legal act by which an unrighteous sinner who believes in Jesus Christ as the Savior is declared righteous before God because Christ's righteousness is imputed to him. Some say it this way. God looks at us as if we have never sinned. I actually like to say it flipped, flipped around in a more positive way. It's as if when we are justified, it's as if God looks at us as if we've always have lived a righteous life before him. Now, that's our position legally. It's not our practice, obviously, right? So we can stand before him Because we are declared righteous by faith and by what he did, what Christ did for us. But, of course, we live our lives practically. Because the verse says that we have all sinned and we still fall and we still stumble. Now, in order to sharpen this a little bit better, let's look at what justification is not so that you know what it is. Roman Catholicism teaches that justification is the initial infusion and impartation, not imputation, but impartation of God's righteousness at baptism that grows in a person that makes him righteous. So a person who's an infant who is baptized, you have, you, you actually possess the righteousness of God in your life, but you have to 
do certain things to maintain it. Uh, you can never fully know if you're fully justified because you have to do a lot of things around it. It's not a legal pronunciation, uh, pronunciation on you. And of course, there are things that you have to do um, and hopefully at the end of your life you'll arrive at final justification. But you never know for sure if you're going to get there. Well, what I just described to you is a the classic Reformed definition of justification. But there are several new Reformed theologians that um, have added something to this concept of justification. And I'm thinking here of John Piper and other people who have said there are two types of justification. The first one is the initial justification when God declares a person righteous based upon faith as their Savior, which is I just spoke about. But then they've added that there is a final or future justification when God judges whether a person's works have validated their initial justification. Without the latter, there is no eternal salvation. Now, that's just works in de facto. Instead of putting works in front of, uh, of that you have to do certain things in order to be justified, they just put the works at the, at the back of it and basically said that you have to prove that you're justified by doing certain things at the end of it. Scriptures don't teach that. It does not teach that. And what I think what's happening here is they're confusing, they're confusing salvation with justification. They are two separate things. Yes, they're related, but they are two separate things. Not every term and every place that it's, the salvation is used, it refers to eternal life. It doesn't. But what happens is when you combine the two, now you're stuck in this, uh, this wheel of making sure and validating your justification by touching on your works and using it as a justification. And um, I don't think the scriptures teach that at all. Then we come to N.T. Wright. And I like N.T. Wright. and He's a godly man. He's written some very interesting books. But on this point of justification, I have to disagree with him. He says that justification is not a legal declaration or imputation of God's righteousness, but it's God's declaration that one is accepted into the covenant family of Abraham, viewed as the church. Faith, evidenced by works, proves that one is already a member of that family, and therefore God declares him justified. That's really, a, a, to me, when... Piper and Wright go at it. They kind of go at it from a semantical argument, in my opinion. They're, they're often talking about the same thing, but you're using different terms for it. But my point here is that if final justification involves works in any way, then Christ did not do enough to pay for our sins. In addition, the Bible clearly shows that when we believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior for eternal life, we have that life. We, we will not be condemned or we will not die eternally. John 3.16, John 5.24, 6, John 6.35, verse 47, John 11.26. Finally, these views contradict the biblical affirmations of the final and instantaneous justification when we believe in Jesus Christ as Savior. Romans 5.1, 1 Corinthians 6.11, to name a few verses. So that's what it's not. When you add anything 
to the concept of justification, then you're saying that Christ didn't really die for everything that needs to happen for us. I love the running back and forth. Um, so how does this happen? How, does, how do we become justified before God? He tells us. Verse 24. We are justified by his grace as a gift. The word gift there means to be, it means to bestow something freely. In John 15, 25, the same word is, means without cause. It's by his grace, without cause. There's nothing outside of God that's making him share his grace with us. But there is something inside of God that's causing him, because of his character, his love, to share that grace with us. There's nothing in us. There's no good works. There's no internal beauty. There's no moral attainment that causes him to share his grace. It's by grace freely as a gift to us. But how does this gift happen? Well, it says, follows the next phrase, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now we're looking at the, the accomplishment of Christ in this through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So it is the means of obtaining the right standing. The, the means of obtaining it is through his redemption. He attained it. Now, the word for redemption actually comes from the slave market uh, of paying someone back, of paying out or delivering someone. So there's three basic ideas around this word redemption. When you're redeemed, you're redeemed from something, namely the marketplace and slavery of sin. You were redeemed, you were bought from it. And you're also redeemed by something. In this case, you're bought by a price, which is the blood of Christ himself. And then you're redeemed to something, namely a state of freedom, of being released of being free from the bondage of sin and the slavery of that sin. Only, as Paul goes on to speak in other passages, that we would give our lives freely as slaves, bond slaves of Jesus Christ. When Paul says that we are justified, he says that we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus. He indicates that, that the meaning of this aspect of redemption is freedom from the penalty of sin that Christ paid and gained for us who are guilty before him. So to summarize justification, I'll get the slide above. It's by means of grace provided by the Father, it's based upon the blood procured by the Son, and it's conditioned upon faith appropriated by the Spirit. And that's in the section further down. We're not going to get into it, into that this morning. <laughs> it can get very, very large and very long. So what does the cross mean to God the Father? It means he has the right now to declare us righteous. He has the ability to declare that you and I are righteous before him. 
That's what it does for him. It, it enables him to declare unrighteous people righteous before him because of the death of his son. But that's not the only thing it does for a father. Look at what it does in verse 25a. Whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood. Now, the phrase God put forth, very interesting phrase, the idea of putting something on public display. Um, the imagery goes to the Gospels where the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom, opening up access to God and to his atonement, his mercy seat. The Ark of the Covenant was within the Holy of Holies. And so when the, the, the curtain was torn from top to bottom when Christ died, God put on display his propitiation. <laughs> it's a fancy word that uh, really means here, it means mercy seat. Um, if you look at the Old Testament, um, it's actually, that's how the, uh, it's translated in the Old Testament. It's actually it refers to it as the mercy seat. And so what Paul is saying here is that Jesus Christ is a, is a kind of walking mercy seat. Now, what do I mean by my mercy seat? Well, it's the lid on top of the Ark of the Covenant. You can see this on the slide. In Leviticus 16, every year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest entered into the Holy of Holies. And what he would do is to bring a, uh, a, uh, a, uh, an, a sort of a, uh, an incense container, and he would open up the curtain to the Holy of Holies, and he would put in a big giant cloud of, uh, of, of smoke, of incense in there, and he would enter in on that Day of Atonement once a year, and he would avert his eyes because over the top of the mercy seat, you have the cherubim, their, their wings are pointing to each other, and there lodged was the presence and the Shekinah glory of God when he was within in the temple. And remember in the Old Testament, Ezekiel declares how the, the Shekinah glory left the temple. Remember that it hovered over the Mount of Olives and then, and then left. And nobody even noticed it. Nobody even cared about it. Of course, the glory of God will come again when Jesus Christ back down to the Mount of Olives. A lot of parallels going on here. But anyways, the, the Shekinah glory, uh, this is where man met God in the, uh, the Holy of Holies. And the, the high priest would come in on the Day of Atonement, and he would take the blood of the goat and he would sprinkle it on top of the mercy seat. And what that would do, it would atone for the sins of the nation. Now, there's incredible rich symbolism going on here, and, and I don't have time to get into everything about it. But So the Shekinah glory and God's presence would look down upon the mercy seat and would see the blood and would then his judgment on the sins of the nation would be appeased, would be expiated, would be removed, would be satisfied. Now, Below the mercy seat, within the Ark of the Covenant, three things existed. 
You had the Aaron, Aaron's rod that budded. Remember Aaron's rod? You had the uh, jar of manna that was preserved and stayed there. And you had the Ten Commandments. And so when, the, when, when God looked down onto the mercy seat, he saw also Aaron's rod, which was basically a symbol of the nation's rebellion against his leadership. And when he saw the, the jar of manna, he saw that the people's rebellion against his provision for them. And then he also saw their violations and their uh, sin against the law all throughout the whole year. And so when the blood was sprinkled there, it would appease and satisfy the justice of God. And the nation would be able to go on for a, another year. So the, the penalty of sin is death, which is basically separation from God. And Christ died for the satisfaction of that demand. That demand was that sin had to be paid for by death. And by redeeming us, he released us from that demand. Of course, we have to trust it and be believe it. And so if Jesus Christ, what Paul is referring to here, it should be translated mercy seat, by the way, not propitiation, although uh, because it's a word that is often confusing to people. So what Paul is saying here is that Jesus Christ is our mercy seat. That he atoned, he satisfied the justice of God by his death. So Jesus Christ satisfied the righteous, just demands of the law of a holy God by satisfying the justice of God. Now someone said, someone said to me in this church once that isn't the cross just a sign of divine child abuse? Really? I mean, the father just beating up his son? I mean, that's contradictory to his love. It's a violation of the oneness of the Trinity. You know, I mean, so he's on the cross and he's saying, why have you forsaken me? I mean, how can he, he can't separate himself from the Trinity. Is that what he's doing? He's beating up his son for all the, all the sins of the world? Well, I think actually this, this particular objection separates the Trinity more than it should. Because what's forgotten here is the father and son had this plan, had this plan in heaven in their counsel between each other. They knew what they wanted to accomplish for mankind. And Jesus Christ came to this earth with that mission in his mind and in his heart and what he did. And so as he lived his life, he knew that he would die on the cross. He predicted it at least three times. And he knew that he would die to satisfy the justice of God. And so it's not something that, you know, Jesus is like, oh, why are you, why are you hitting upon me? They agreed that this was the price that had to be paid for a righteousness and a justice that was satisfied. So when Jesus Christ hung on the cross and he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His human nature paid the price for sin for all time. His divine nature didn't die on the cross. His human nature did. And the divine nature, of course, applied that 
sacrifice, that atonement for all of mankind. So as a man, he was forsaken in the darkness of God to be a mercy seat, to remove the barrier of sin, to tear the curtain in half from top to bottom, to show the mercy seat, to show the access that we have to God is not limited any longer to the day of atonement or to a high priest, but we have full access to that atonement because he was the propitiation by his blood. And also the thing that's forgotten here is the resurrection. He just didn't die. He rose from the dead. And that rising of the dead vindicated all of who he was and what he came to do. That is to satisfy, to justify, and to propitiate the justice of God by his own blood. John Stott says it this way. It is God himself in holy wrath and justice that needs to be propitiated. God himself in holy love undertook to do the propitiating. And God himself, whom in the person of his son, died for the propitiation of our sins. That's an amazing concept. And what it means to God is that he is no longer at odds with us. He, we are at peace with God. See, it enabled him to say, you are justified. You are justified. You have a right and correct standing before me. And also enabled him to say, I'm satisfied with that. Now, the question is, are you satisfied with that? If God's satisfied with the death of his son, then we need to be satisfied with that. We need to stop trying to put our own efforts in line of what that might mean. Because they're all going to fall short anyway. Well, we need to take this down into our hearts and realize that there is nothing, nothing that we can do to earn this. It is by grace as a gift to us. I like what Max Lakato says. Ponder the achievement of God. He doesn't condone sin, nor does he compromise his standard. He doesn't ignore our rebellion, nor does he relax his demands. Rather than dismiss our sin, he assumes our sin and incredibly sentences himself. God's holiness is honored. Our sin is punished. And we are redeemed. God does what we cannot do so that we can be what we dare not dream, perfect before God. So to summarize these two concepts of justification and propitiation, look at this slide. They're amazing doctrines that are really two sides of the same coin. In justification, we are declared righteous. In propitiation, the righteousness of God is satisfied. 
in justification, it looks down upon us and says that we are righteous to have a legal standing before God. In propitiation, it looks upward toward God of satisfying his justice. Justification removes any barrier of sin. Propitiation talks about the wrath and the justice of God being appeased. Justification means that Christ died for us. Propitiation means that Christ died for God. So, there are two purposes of this righteousness that God is displaying in this passage. The first one we can see in the first part of verse 25. I should say the second part of verse 25. Uh, it says, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over the former sins. doesn't mean he forgot them. It doesn't mean that they weren't forgiven. It means that what he did is he took the sins of the Old Testament saints and he applied it to the cross of Christ. The second purpose is found in 26. Notice, show in verse 25b, to show the righteous, God's righteousness. 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. So one looks back at all of the past violations of the Old Testament and, he, and, and his righteousness applied it to the person of Christ. And the second purpose of his righteousness here is to show in the present time that God is just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. Are you with me? Good. So what am I saying this today? What I'm saying is this. When we come to God through Christ, we come to a friendly Father, not an angry God. God is no longer angry with you. Your access to him is open and free. Since death is the penalty for sin, Christ died for the Father that, to satisfy that demand and he redeemed us and to release us from that demand. And he did it for dying for us. So here's some ideas here around what the cross means to God. There's three of them. First of all, God is justified in declaring you righteous. And thus you will not come under judgment at all. You have a righteous standing before God. Number two. God is finally at peace with you because of Jesus Christ's righteousness who satisfied the demands of a holy and righteous God. Sometimes I hear, hear people tell me you know, they think that God's out to get them. I got news for you. If he was out to get you, he would have gotten you already. <laughs> He's not out to get you. He is at peace with you, not for anything that you've done, but for everything that his son has done. And we need to live in that peace. We need to live in that acceptance. We need to live in light of the fact of us being legally justified before God. We need to take this truth down into our lives. This is the third point. 
You are no longer a sinner in the hands of an angry God, like Jonathan Edwards thought, but a saint in the hands of a loving and just God. God now relates to you as a father and a child in relationship, not as a sinner under condemnation. We need to live that way, brothers and sisters. We don't need to look back upon all that we've done or didn't do or should have done and look forward and say, well, I have so much more to do. Someone once said that the average Christian today crucifies himself between two thieves, the regrets of the past and the worries of the future. My friends, the cross has done away with that. You have a perfect legal standing before God as a righteous person, as if you have done everything right in your life. And God is at peace with that and with you. He relates to you now completely as a father and as a son because his righteousness has been satisfied. It's a story of a Canadian surveyor who uh, was surveying some farmland in Alberta. How many of you have ever been to Alberta, Canada? Oh, yes, okay. I've, I've been there. It's, uh, it's very flat. <laughs> if you go to the west, obviously, you hit the Canadian Rockies, but it's very flat, and there's a lot of wheat fields up there. And this man was surveying this area, and he was really far from his car. And he sees a brush fire coming at him. And he doesn't know what to do. He starts to panic, and it's too far to run to his car before the fire gets to him. So he start, stops, and he thinks for a second. And there's an idea. He takes out a lighter, and he burns a, a round spot of uh, wheat in front of him, a big patch of black burnt wheat. And he steps in the middle of it as the fire is coming towards him. And he crouches down, and the fire goes right around him. Why? Because fire doesn't burn where it already has been burned. Christ has satisfied the justice of a righteous and holy God. And that fire of judgment came upon him. And what you and I do when we enter into that relationship by faith and faith alone, we stand in the middle of that burned circle, which is the mercy seat, which is the place where God's wrath and his justice have been executed upon his own son. And therefore, we have a relationship with him, not of fire, but one of a child and a father. Jesus Christ hung on that cross, and he said, my God... My God, why have you forsaken me? He said that so that we never have to. Let's pray. Father, I know this is a lot to, to take in, a lot to try to understand, but it is foundational to our relationship with you. And Lord, as we look and as we worship this morning, may we understand better what the cross means to you and that you have justified us, that you, that you are at peace with us in our lives 
And Lord, as we live our lives, we reflect back to you in gratitude and in, in grace and in, and in uh, worship all that you have done for us. Lord, make that real to us today and for all of our lives. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.